Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the leaders featured on this podcast. In this special episode, we hear from former U.S. Secretary of Education, John King, about this historic moment we have to address long-standing racial inequities. A barrier-breaking leader in education, Secretary King was the first Black American and Puerto Rican to serve as New York State Education Commissioner. He was then appointed by President Obama as U.S. Deputy Secretary of Education and ultimately Secretary. He's now President and CEO of the Education Trust and a resident of Maryland, where he just launched a project to end systemic racism and build a more equitable, just, and prosperous state. He shared with us his hopes for the Biden administration, including policies from the Trump Department of Education that need to be reversed. And he talks about how we must move beyond rhetoric to concrete actions that bring real change. Secretary King spoke at this month's New Deal Leaders Conference with Amanda Edwards, former Houston City Councilwoman, U.S. Senate candidate, and a longtime member of New Deal. I hope you enjoy their conversation. Welcome, Secretary King. We're so excited to have you, and thank you for all of your service in this very important arena. Thanks so much. So I'll jump in right away, and I know that race is obviously an issue that is not a simple one and has very complicated roots. And so I want to hear from you in terms of some of the challenges that you saw when you were serving in your role as Secretary of Education as it related to race, and where do you think we stand today? Well, look, the, the sad reality is, as a country, we give the least to the students who need the most. Low-income students and students of color systematically get less access to the things we know are most valuable, less access to quality early childhood education, less access to resources, uh, less access to well-prepared teachers, less access to advanced coursework like APs or advanced career and technical education, less access to support in making their transition to college, and Black and Latino students are systematically underrepresented in higher education, including in our public higher education system, where our state flagships, which ought to be very representative of their states, actually underserve in state after state Black and Latino students. And, and the result is the continuing racial wealth gap inequitable access to economic opportunity. And so for me, the, addressing education equity is central to addressing issues of racial justice in our society. And in light of the fact that this has been a pervasive issue that did not start and end in recent times, of course, goes back and dates back to the times of slavery even, what do you think are some of the initial next steps that maybe a Biden-Harris administration would need to take as it relates to addressing issues of systemic racism in our education system? 
Yeah. Well, there are some things they could do very quickly through executive action. So uh, the current administration, the Trump administration withdrew, for example, guidance we put forward in the Obama administration around discipline to try to address the racial disparities in discipline. Think about the fact that black girls are five times as likely to be suspended from school as white girls. Uh, So we put forward guidance to address that. That was withdrawn. We put forward guidance to help school districts understand how they could pursue school integration strategies. That was withdrawn. Uh, So those are two immediate actions they could take to restore that guidance. Uh, Long term, they'll need to work with Congress to address some of these deeper structural problems that we have. Now, President-elect talked during the campaign about tripling Title I. That's the main federal funding source for low-income students. That would be a powerful step. If you could tie tripling Title I to a maintenance of equity that would require that states address their own state funding formulas and protect their highest needs districts from cuts in this uh, difficult economic environment, that would be very powerful. Doubling Pell Grants, the main federal funding stream for low-income students to access higher education, would have a very positive impact for students of color being able to not just get to college, but succeed there and graduate. Uh, So there are some more bold actions, but those will require congressional support. And we all know uh, that that may be a challenge, uh, depending on how things turn out in Georgia. Yes, everybody stay tuned to the Senate race in Georgia because so much is is definitely lying in the balance there, as we know. Uh, Now, you mentioned something that I think is important because oftentimes when we talk about issues, we talk about them in silos. We talk about education as if the criminal justice system is not not uniquely intertwined. We talk about healthcare as if that's something that is disconnected from issues of education, housing. All of them obviously creates a whole community and an opportunity uh, that people can either utilize to, to thrive or that holds them back. And in many of our communities, communities of color, for example, those issues are, are issues that have been under-addressed, under-resourced. And so from a holistic standpoint, do you believe that there will be an agenda that kind of holistically invests in communities so that uh, all tides will rise in terms of access to opportunity so people can actually be successful and not be in the school-to-prison pipeline, for example? Well, there, there has to be. I think you're exactly right that these issues are all deeply interconnected. We have 30 million plus kids every day who rely on school for meals. We have 14 million kids today in this country who are food insecure. We've got to make sure kids eat if we want them to be able to thrive in school. Uh, we know that there are kids who struggle academically because they can't see the board or can't read the book because they have unaddressed vision care issues. So access to health care is an education issue. We know that uh, a significant percentage of the folks who are incarcerated don't have high school diplomas. Their lack of ability to access educational opportunity is directly related to their involvement in the criminal justice system. So we have to see all these issues as interconnected. I do think uh, the president-elect prioritizing racial justice 
and prioritizing economic recovery from COVID uh, is a good sign. Those pieces have to be connected. And we need states to do the same thing. We need state leadership that is forward thinking, that's asking, well, if folks are incarcerated, when they come home to the community, what are we doing to make sure they can find housing, get access to a job, get support through the reentry process? Otherwise, prison becomes a revolving door. Uh, we need state leaders who are saying to themselves, what are we doing to ensure there's a supply of affordable housing? Because if kids are homeless or underhoused, they struggle in school. So I, one of the things I love about the work at New Deal and the kinds of conversations you're having today is this deep understanding that people live intersectional and intersectoral lives and that we have to not think in silos, but, but think in deeply interconnected ways. Well, Secretary King, you did a wonderful job of transitioning me to state and local discussion of this issue of race and education and criminal justice and, and the like. And of course, as part of the New Deal, folks all around the country from local government to state government have been working on these issues. What do you foresee being one of the biggest needs in light of COVID, this pandemic and coming out successfully, especially with things like the digital divide really having a disproportionate impact and disparate impact on communities of color, for example? Sure. Well, we need we certainly need help from the federal government, right? We need congressional action on the stimulus. All the state and local officials who are with us understand that if the federal government doesn't provide additional assistance to states and to local governments, folks are going to be facing cuts, 5, 10, 15% cuts, and that will be devastating for services. So we need help from the federal level. But at the state level and the local level, I think there's an opportunity to ask, how do we, as the president-elect would say, build back better? That it's not good enough to just go back to how things were in February 2020, because that was inequitable. So what does it look like to, to finally take action on the digital divide? Look, we had the homework gap before COVID, where 79% of white families have internet access, 66% of black families, 61% of Latino families. But during this COVID period, that's meant some kids can't even log into school. Uh, it's meant yeah. folks can't access uh, telehealth services, right? And so this is a moment where we should say, how do we solve that in our community? How do we make sure that every family can get internet access? How do we, as we think about economic recovery, make sure that's not just the affluent folks who experience recovery, but that we have an economic development strategy that reaches high needs, urban and rural communities. How do we lower the barriers for small businesses to getting started and to growing? And I, I hope that, that we will see this really as a New Deal moment in the tradition of FDR and ask, what are the structural changes we can make? Yeah, and it's an opportunity for us to reimagine, re-envision the way that we've been doing things, because I think at this time, we've gotten people's attention in a way probably before the pandemic we would have never had. People understanding as a kitchen table discussion, some of the issues like digital divide and how that has an impact on students and their ability to succeed. So let me turn to your work with Strong Future Maryland and, and kind of there's a, a bit on social justice and, and criminal justice as well. Can you share a little bit about 
some of the successes and some of the opportunities to to succeed as it relates to the work with Strong Future Maryland? Yeah. So I started Strong Future Maryland because I, I want to make sure this is a New Deal moment in, in Maryland. And mm-hmm. for me, that means we've got to do a few things. We've got to invest in education. Our governor mm-hmm. vetoed a significant effort in the legislature last year to reform school funding in the state to get more resources to high needs districts. A very short-sighted decision. So we got to override that veto. The governor vetoed new funding for historically black colleges and universities in the state, even though they play a critical role in driving the growth of a black middle class in the state. We got to override that veto. So we're working to do that. Uh, We've got to make sure that our economic recovery reaches Baltimore City, reaches out to the eastern shore of Maryland, to to western Maryland. And that means we got to invest in things like career and technical education. And as part of K-12, we got to invest in our community colleges so that folks have access to training for new jobs. Uh, we've got to invest in public transit so that folks can access where their jobs are. Uh, there are folks within the city of Baltimore who have to spend two, two and a half hours on buses to get to work. We should solve that with a better approach to public transit. We've got to approach recovery in a way that's sustainable. Uh, We know we're already seeing the effects of climate change. That's wildfires in California, it's hurricanes in the Southeast, but it's also flooding in Ellicott City and other places in in the state of Maryland. So we're losing coastline actually to climate change. So we've got to think about uh, renewable energy. There are good jobs to be had in offshore wind and solar, in electrification of buildings and houses. And we've got to acknowledge how deeply interconnected we all are. Hopefully a lesson from this COVID period for everyone is that all of our fates are bound up together. There are affluent folks who never thought before about what it would be like to be without childcare. Now they're very conscious of how important childcare is. So let's take this as a moment to make high quality childcare universally accessible. There are folks who maybe didn't think so much about the exceptions to our paid sick leave law, but now realize, hey, it's really important that everybody is able to take paid sick leave because their health is my health. The health of the community is gonna affect the health of my family. So our goal is really to build a movement to to take advantage of this opportunity where folks I think are, are experiencing a greater degree of empathy for those who are struggling. Take advantage of that to say, let's, uh, strengthen our social contract, again, in in, in the New Deal tradition. Mm-hmm. And that is extraordinary work. What do you see as some of the main or primary obstacles uh, that would come between you achieving some of those goals and the, the efforts that you're extending right now? Yeah, well, I think two things. One is, uh, you know, we, we're in this moment where we have sort of a, a deficit of hope Right. And folks have felt very beleaguered by COVID, beleaguered by the ways in which the Trump administration was hostile to uh, so many of the priorities we all care about, hostile to communities of color, hostile to immigrant communities. And so there is this 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 um, sense of of loss of faith that we can make things better. And one of the things I, I loved about being part of the Obama administration was the, the was President Obama's consistent message 
that we could build a better future, that yes, we have struggles, but we could build a better tomorrow. Uh, that resonated with me. That's true of my own life. My, both my parents uh, passed away when I was a kid. Uh, my mom when I was eight, my dad when I was 12. School saved my life. <clears throat> People having hope for me despite all those challenges, save mm-hmm. my life. people investing in me. And so I, I think we, we have to close this hope deficit. And then we also have to close this expectations gap where people say, well, you know, we're in this financial crisis. There's nothing we can do. We can't really afford to invest in education. We can't really afford to address climate change. You know, we'll, we'll have to deal with that later. And to me, that's exactly backwards. I mean, part of the Part of the message, I hope, of the New Deal discussion is um, this is exactly the moment where we should be making those critical long-term investments. This isn't a moment to shrink Hoover style from the challenges we face. Uh, This is a moment to step up to those challenges and to be even more ambitious about what can be accomplished. And let me ask this, what advice do you have for state and local policymakers who are embarking upon this potential for, as you, I mean, didn't put it this way, but a renaissance of sorts where we really can begin to reimagine things. What what advice do you have for them in terms of taking advantage of this moment? Yeah, so 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 three things. Um, one is uh, President Obama would would. Uh, make the, the point that, that better is good and that we have to see progress as valuable. We, we, some, we're not necessarily always gonna get uh, the whole thing that we want, but we, mm-hmm. we make incremental progress and then we pass the baton on to the next generation. So I think being very strategic about what is achievable is critical. Mm-hmm. Two, uh, we gotta organize, organize, organize. We're all counting on Stacey Abrams. She's done, she did amazing work to help the president-elect to win Georgia. And we're all counting on that work continuing as we we move towards these Senate races. But what Stacey's example illustrates, I think, is the power of organizing, the power of inviting into the conversation people who haven't participated, people who've lost hope, people who are skeptical about politics, inviting them into the conversation, spending time listening to them, their concerns and convincing them that we can achieve more. So that organizing work I think is is critical. And third is uh, lifting up the voices of the people who are impacted. Uh, I'll give you one example. One of the things that I'm very proud of that we worked on in the Obama administration was a pilot project to allow folks who are incarcerated to use Pell Grants. A mistake that was made in the 90s, in the 94 crime bill, was to ban access to Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. This caused thousands of programs in prisons that were providing higher education to close. So we created this pilot project. We still are working at the Education Trust where I work. We're still working to get Congress to repeal that misguided ban. But that pilot project has allowed thousands of folks who are incarcerated to have access to higher education. What is so powerful is when they tell their story. And I've talked with folks, very conservative governors, whose whole view about Pell Grants for incarcerated students was transformed by going to a prison, meeting with uh, the students, hearing about their experience, hearing how transformative it was for them to have those educational opportunities, and not just for them, but for their families, what it meant for their kids to see them pursuing education, what it meant for what they'd be able to do when they got home that would be different from what they were doing that got them into prison in the first place. So 
lifting up the voices of those who are impacted, whether it's folks impacted by the criminal justice system, the, the folks who are impacted by our healthcare disparities, the folks who are suffering environmental injustice and experiencing the, the toll that environmental injustice takes. Like if we can put those voices forward, we can not only mobilize, but we can persuade. And we have to persuade uh, those who maybe are skeptical or reluctant that the kinds of policy changes we want are necessary and in the long-term interests of the country. Absolutely. And I think those are really sound pieces of advice. And so often it's the case that there are not faces next to and names next to the stories that we hear anecdotes about. And so having that associated with it, I think is very, very impactful and great advice. I think one thing that is is striking to us in the era of George Floyd's murder injustice with regard to Breonna Taylor in terms of racial justice is where do we go from here? I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of what you would like to see happen as we've now garnered the attention of people internationally on issues of race here in America. What do you think are the next steps in terms of really uh, getting that high level of engagement? There was a time in which corporations, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, were sending out statements of uh, disavowing racism and the like. Uh, now that those statements have, have been issued, what would you like to see happen in America? What do you think are next steps in terms of really addressing issues of racial justice? Yeah, it's such an important point. You know, I think to me that the question is, can we go from what I would describe as performative wokeness to policy wokeness? The, the, the statements are nice, but the substance yeah. is what matters, right? And so I want to know if you're a corporation and you put out one of these, you know, important statements of solidarity in the spring, what does your C-suite look like? How That's diverse right. are your executives? What does your board look like? What kinds of suppliers are you using? Are you intentional about looking at opportunities to uh, to work with other businesses that are owned by people of color? Right? What are you doing to make real that rhetoric? If you're a school district, uh, who's in the AP classes? And do the AP classes look much more white and affluent than the other classes in your school, if that's true, what are you doing to change that? How are you making kind of a substantive difference? And on policing in particular, I think we've got to ask, of course, we need accountability for officers who uh, abuse citizens. Of course, we need changes to use of force policies, but we also have to reimagine public safety. We have to ask, uh, are we asking police officers to do things that really should be done by mental health professionals? Mm -hmm. Aren't we putting people into the criminal justice system who really just need good drug treatment, mm -hmm. substance addiction treatment? And shouldn't we be investing in that? Shouldn't we be uh, creating more jobs in, in high needs communities and making it easier for folks to access jobs? Shouldn't we be doing smarter uh, efforts to help people with re-entry so that we don't have the problem of sort of a, a chronic revolving door around incarceration, right? So we have to think systemically, not, not just respond in the moment, but, but get at these deeper structural challenges. 
Well, Secretary King, this was such an insightful conversation, albeit brief. One, I think that will stick with the New Deal leaders as they embark upon uh, governing in a time that is unprecedented, but in a time that really presents a tremendous amount of opportunity. So I want to thank you on behalf of the New Deal for being one of our special guests today and for the insight that you shared and of course the service that you have already rendered and that you continue to render in your work in Maryland. So thank you so very much for joining us today. Thanks for the conversation and thanks for your leadership. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.